BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 3, Part 1 of The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter 3 The Swing of the Pendulum. Part 1. There was now little doubt that Madame Colucci knew herself to be in personal danger. On the Derby Day I had thrown down the gauntlet with a vengeance. Her object henceforth would be to put me out of the way. I lived in an atmosphere of intangible mystery, which was all the darker and more horrible because it was felt, not seen. By Dufrayer's advice I left the bringing of this dangerous woman to justice in his hands. He employed the cleverest and most up-to-date detectives to have her secretly watched, and from time to time they brought us their reports. Clue after clue arose. Each clue was carefully followed, but it invariably led to disappointing results. Madame eluded every effort to bring a definite charge against her. The money we were spending, however, was not entirely in vain. We learned that her influence and the wide range of her acquaintances were far beyond what we had originally surmised. Her fame as a healer, her marvelous and occult cures, the reputation of her great wealth and dazzling beauty increased daily, and I was certain that before long I should meet her in the lists. The encounter was destined to come sooner even than I had anticipated, and in a manner most unexpected. It was the beginning of the following November that I received an invitation to dine with an old friend, Harry de Brett. He was several years my senior, and had recently succeeded to his father's business in the city, an old established firm of bankers, whose house was in St. Mark's Court, Gracechurch Street. Only a few days previously I had seen it announced in the society papers that a marriage had been arranged between de Brett's only daughter, Geraldine, and the Duke of Friedeck, a foreign nobleman, whose name I had seen figuring prominently at many a function the previous season. I had known Geraldine since she was a child, and was glad to have an opportunity of offering my congratulations. At the appointed hour I found myself at de Brett's beautiful house in Bayswater, and Geraldine, who was standing near her father, came eagerly forward to welcome me. She was a pretty and very young girl, with a clear olive complexion and soft dark eyes. She had the innocent and naive manner of a schoolgirl. She was delighted to see me, and began to talk eagerly. "'Come and stand by this window, Mr. Head. I am so glad you were able to come. I want to introduce you to Carl, the Duke of Friedeck, I mean. He will be here in a minute or two. As she spoke, she dropped her voice to a semi-whisper. "'You know, of course, that we are to be married soon?' she continued. 
"'I have heard of the engagement,' I answered, "'and I congratulate you heartily. "'I should like very much to meet the Duke. "'His name is, of course, familiar to anyone who reads the society papers.' "'He is anxious to make your acquaintance also,' she replied. "'I told him you were coming, and he said—' she paused. "'But surely the Duke of Friedeck has never heard of me before,' I answered in some surprise. "'I think he has,' she answered. "'He was quite excited when I spoke of you. I asked him if he had met you. He said no, but that you were very well known in scientific circles as a clever man. The Duke is a great scientist himself, Mr. Head, and I know he would like to have a chat with you. I am certain you will be friends.' Just at that moment the Duke was announced. He was a tall and handsome man of about five-and-thirty, with the somewhat florid complexion, blue eyes, and fair curling hair of the Teuton. He was well-dressed, and had the indescribable air of good breeding which proclaims the gentleman. I looked at him with much curiosity, being puzzled by an intangible memory of having seen his face before, where and how I could not tell. Geraldine tripped up to him and brought him to my side. "'Carl,' she cried, "'this is my friend, Mr. Head. Don't you remember we talked about him this morning?' Friedek bowed. "'I am glad to make your acquaintance,' he said to me. "'Yours is a name of distinction in the world of science.' "'That can scarcely be the case,' I answered. "'It is true I am fond of original research, but up to the present I have worked for my own pleasure alone.' "'Nevertheless, the world has whispered of you,' he replied. "'I, too, am fond of science, and have lost myself more than once in its tortuous mazes. I have lately started a laboratory of my own, but just now other matters—' He broke off abruptly, and glanced at Geraldine, who smiled and blushed. Dinner was announced. I happened to sit not far from the guest of the evening, and noticed that he was a good conversationalist. There was scarcely a subject mentioned on which he had not something to say, and on more than one occasion his repartee was brilliant, and his remarks touched with humour. Geraldine, in her white dress, with her soft, rather sad eyes, her manner at once bright, sweet, and timid, made a contrast to this astute-looking man of the world. I glanced from one to the other, and an uneasiness which I could scarcely account for sprang up within me. Notwithstanding his handsome appearance and his easy and courteous manner, I wondered if this man, nearly double her age, was likely to make the pretty English girl happy. As dinner progressed I observed that the Duke often took the trouble to look at me. I also noticed that whenever our eyes met he turned away. How was it possible for him to have heard of me before? Although I was a scientist, my researches were unknown to the world. I determined to take the first opportunity of solving this mystery. Soon after eleven o'clock the guests took their leave, and I was just about to follow their example when de Brett asked me to have a pipe with him in his smoking-room. As we seated ourselves by the fire, he began to talk at once of his future son-in-law. "'He is a capital fellow, is he not, Head?' exclaimed my host. "'I hope you have formed a favourable opinion of him.' "'I never form an opinion quickly,' I answered with caution. "'The Duke of Friedeck is certainly distinguished in appearance, and—' "'Oh, you are too cautious,' cried de Brett in some irritation. "'You may take my word for it, that he is all right. This is a great catch for my little girl.' Of course she will have plenty of money on her own account, but the Duke is not only of high family, he is also rich. He comes from Bavaria, and his title is absolutely genuine. Soon after the great Duke of Marlborough's wars, and almost immediately after the Battle of Blenheim, the Austrian government took possession of the dukedom of Friedeck, and, until lately, the family have remained in exile. 
It was only a year ago that the present duke regained his rights and all the great estates. He was introduced to us by no less a person than Madame Colucci. Ah, I see you start. You have heard of her, of course. Who has not? I replied. Do you know her? I have met her, I said. It was only with an effort I can control the ungovernable excitement which seized me at the mere mention of this woman's name. "'She dines with us next week,' continued Debrett. "'A wonderful woman, wonderful! Her cures are marvellous, but that is, after all, the least part of her interesting personality. She is so fascinating, so wise and good-natured, that men and women alike fall at her feet. As to Geraldine, she has taken an immense fancy to her.' "'Where did you first meet her?' I asked. "'In Scotland, last summer.' She was staying with my old friends, the Campbells, for a couple of nights, and Friedek was also one of the guests. If she is a friend of yours, Head, and I rather expect so from your manner, will you dine with us again next Thursday in order to meet her? We are going down to my place, Forest Manor, in Essex, and Madame is to stay with us for a couple of nights. We expect quite a large party, and can give you a bed. Will you come? I wish I could, but I fear it will be impossible, I replied. It is true that I know Madame Colucci, but—I broke off. Don't ask me any more at the moment, Debrett. The fact is, your news has excited me, you will say, unreasonably. Debrett gazed at me with earnestness. You have fallen under the spell of the most beautiful woman in London, he said after a pause. Is that so, Head? You may put it that way if you like, I said, but I cannot explain myself to-night. Be assured, however, of my deep interest in this matter— Pray tell me anything more you may happen to know with regard to the Duke of Friedeck. "'You certainly are a strange fellow,' said my host. "'You are wearing at the present moment an air of quite painful mystery. However, here goes. You wish to hear about the Duke. I have nothing but good to tell of him. He is a rich man, and dabbles now and then on the stock exchange, but not to any serious extent. A week ago he arranged for a loan from my bank.' depositing as security some of the most splendid diamonds i have ever seen they are worth a king's ransom and each stone is historical he brought the diamonds away from the estates in bavaria and they are to be reset and presented to geraldine just before the wedding how large was the amount of the loan i asked debrett raised his eyebrows he evidently thought i was infringing on privileges even of an old friend compared with the security the loan was a trifling one he said after a pause, not more than ten thousand pounds. Friedek will pay me back next week, as he wishes to release the diamonds, in order to have them ready to give to Geraldine on her wedding day. "'And when do you propose that the wedding shall take place?' I continued. "'Ah, you have me there, Head. That is the painful part. You know what my motherless girl is to me. Well, the Duke insists upon taking her away between now and Christmas. They are to spend Christmas in the old feudal style, in the old castle in Bavaria. It is a great wrench parting from the little one, but she will be happy. I never met a man I took more warmly to than Karl Duke of Friedeck. You can see for yourself that the child is devoted to him. I can, I said. I will wish you good night now, Debrett. Be assured once again of my warm interest in all that concerns you and Geraldine. I shook hands with my host, and a moment later found myself in the street. I called a hansom, and desired the man to drive straight to Defrayer's flat in Shaftesbury Avenue. He had just come in, and welcomed me eagerly. "'By all that's fortunate, Head!' he exclaimed. "'I was just on my way to see you.' "'Then we have met well,' I answered. "'Defrayer, I have come here on a most important matter. 
But first of all, tell me, have you ever heard of the Duke of Friedeck? The Duke of Friedeck? cried Dufrayer. Why, it was on that very subject I wished to see you. You have, of course, observed the announcement of his approaching marriage in the society papers? I have, I replied. He is engaged to Geraldine de Brett. I have been dining at de Brett's house to-night, and met the Duke at dinner. De Brett has been telling me all about him. Dufrayer, I have learned to my consternation that the man was introduced to the de Bretts by Madame Colucci. That fact is quite enough to rouse my suspicions, but I see you have something to communicate on your own account. What is it? Sit down, Head. You know, of course, that I am having Madame watched. The Duke of Friedeck is beyond doubt one of her satellites, and I am strongly inclined to think that this is a new plot brewing. Just my own opinion, I replied, but tell me what you know. I was coming to see you, for I hoped that you might remember the Duke's name from your old association with the Brotherhood. I do not recall it, but names mean nothing. The man is handsome, and has the manners of a gentleman. When he entered de Brett's drawing-room, I thought for a moment that I must have met him before, but that idea quickly vanished. Nevertheless, he contrived to arouse my suspicions by more than one stealthy glance which he favoured me with, even before his connection with Madame Colucci was mentioned. I regard him now as a highly suspicious individual, and I fully believe he is playing some game a little deeper than appears. "'Beyond doubt, the man has plenty of money and moves in good circles,' said Dufrayer. He is known, however, to live a pretty fast life. He shoots at Hurlingham, drives his own drag, rents a moor in Scotland, and has a suite at the Hotel Cecil. But nothing can be discovered against him except that he is constantly seen in Madame's company. And that is quite enough, I replied. Friedeck is one of Madame's satellites. Without doubt there is mischief ahead. I agree with you, said Dufrayer. I think it more than possible that this plausible duke is simply another serpent springing from the head of this modern Bedusa. In that case, de Brett ought to be warned. I rose uneasily. I would have warned him to-night, I answered, but I want more evidence. How are we to get it? Tyler's agents are doing their best, and Madame is closely watched. Yes, but that woman could deceive the devil himself, I said bitterly. That is true, answered Dufrayer, and to show our hand too soon might be fatal. We cannot move in this matter until we have got more circumstantial evidence. How are we to set to work is the puzzle. Well, I said, I shall move heaven and earth in this matter. I have known Geraldine since she was a child. She is a sweet, innocent, motherless girl. The great risk to her happiness that may now be impending is too serious to contemplate quietly. If I had time, I should go to Bavaria in order to find out if the Duke's story is true. But in any case, it might be well to send one of Tyler's agents to look up the supposed estates. I will do so, said Dufrayer and in the meantime I shall watch, I said, and if an opportunity occurs, believe me, de Brett shall have his warning. As I spoke, I bade my friend good-night, and returned to my own house. The next few days were spent in anxious thought, but no immediate action seemed possible. Clue after clue still arose, but only to vanish into nothing. I seldom now went into society without hearing Madame Colucci's name, and all the accounts of her were favourable. She was the sort of woman to charm the eye and fire the imagination. Her personal attractions were some of her strongest potentialities. On the following Tuesday, as I was walking down Oxford Street, a brougham drew up suddenly at the pavement. The window was lowered, and a girlish face looked eagerly out. "'Mr. Head,' cried Geraldine de Brett eagerly, "'you are the very man I want. Come here, I have something to say.' 
I approached her at once. "'We are dreadfully disappointed at your refusing to come to us on Thursday,' she continued. "'We are making up a delightful party. My father and I are going down to Forest Manor for a fortnight, in order to have plenty of room to entertain our friends. This is a personal matter with me. I ask you to come to us as a personal favour. Will you refuse?' I looked full into the sparkling and lovely eyes of the young girl. The colour came and went in her cheeks. She laid one of her small hands for a moment on mine. "'I must tell you everything,' she continued eagerly. "'Of course I want you. But I am not the only one. Madame Colucci, ah, uh, you have heard of her?' "'Who has not?' was my cautious reply. "'Yes, but, Mr. Head, you are concealing something. Madame is one of your very greatest friends. She has told me so. It is only an hour since I left her.' She is most anxious to meet you on Thursday at our house. I promised you should be there. Wasn't it rash of me? But I made up my mind that I would insist on your coming. Now you won't allow me to break my word, will you? Did Madame Colucci really say that she wished to see me? I asked. As I put the question, I felt my face turning pale. I looked again full at Mr. Brett. It was evident that she misinterpreted my emotion. Well, that mattered nothing. I quickly made up my mind. "'I had an engagement for Thursday,' I said. "'But your word is law. I cannot refuse you.' Geraldine laughed. "'Madam, doubted my power to bring you, but I knew you would come if I could really see you. Suppose we had not met in this chance sort of way. I was going to your house. I had no intention of leaving a stone unturned. Without you my party will not be complete. Yes, you will come, and it is all right. You will hear from father to-morrow.' He very often drives out to Forest Manor from the bank, and perhaps you can arrange to come with him. But you will get all the particulars straight from him. Thank you a thousand times. You have made me a happy girl. She waved her hand to me in farewell, and the brome rolled out of sight. My blood was coursing quickly through my veins, and my mind was made up. Madame would not wish me to meet her at Debrett's house without a strong reason. With her usual astuteness, she was using Geraldine de Brett as her tool in more senses than one. I must not delay another moment in warning the banker. Calling a hansom, I desired the man to drive me straight to de Brett's bank in the city, and soon after twelve o'clock I found myself in Grace Church Street. In a few moments the hansom turned down a narrow lane leading into St. Mark's Court. Here I paid my driver, and a moment later found myself in the open space in front of the bank. This was a cul-de-sac, but there was another lane leading into it also from Gracechurch Street, running parallel to the one I had come down, and separated from it by a narrow row of buildings, which came to an abrupt termination about fifty feet from the houses forming the farther side of the court. Well, as I knew de Brett, I had not been at the old bank for some years, and looked around me now eagerly, until my eye fell upon the large brass plate bearing the well-known name. I entered the office, and going up to the counter, asked if Mr. de Brett were in. The clerk replied in the affirmative, and giving him my card, he passed through a door into an inner room. The next moment he reappeared and requested me to step inside. I found de Brett seated at a writing-table, upon which a circle of light fell from a shaded incandescent. "'Welcome, Head!' he exclaimed, rising and coming forward with his usual heartiness of manner. "'To what am I indebted for this visit? Sit down! I am delighted to see you. By the way, Geraldine tells me—' "'I have just met your daughter,' I interrupted, "'and it is principally on account of that meeting "'that I have come here to trouble you during business hours.' "'Oh, I can spare you ten minutes,' he answered, "'looking around him as he spoke. 
"'The fact is, Head, Geraldine is anxious that you should join our party at Forest Manor, and I wish you would reconsider your determination. The Duke has taken a fancy to you, and as you happen to know Madame Colucci, it would be a pleasure to us all if you would give us the benefit of your society for a night or two. I have promised Geraldine to come, I answered gravely, but, de Brett, you must pardon me. I have intruded on you in your business hours to speak on a most delicate private matter. However you may receive what I have to say, I must ask you to hear it in confidence, and with that good feeling that has prompted me to come to you. My dear head, what do you mean? Pray, explain yourself. I am uneasy, I continued, very uneasy. I am also in a peculiar position, and cannot disclose the reason of my fears. You are pleased with the match which Geraldine is about to make. Now I have reasons for doubting the Duke of Friedeck, reasons which I cannot at the present moment disclose, but I am bound, yes, bound, de Brett, in your girl's interest, to warn you as to your dealings with him. De Brett looked at me through his gold-rimmed spectacles with a blank expression of amazement. "'If it were any other man who spoke to me in this strain,' he said at last, "'I believe I should show him the door. Are you aware, Head, that this is a most serious allegation?' You are bound in all honour to explain yourself. I cannot do so at the present moment. I can only repeat that my fears are grave. All I ask of you is to use double caution, to find out all you can about the man's antecedents. De Brett interrupted me, rising hastily from his seat. "'In our dealings one with the other,' he said, "'this is the first time in which you have shown bad taste. I shall see the Duke this afternoon, and shall be bound to acquaint him, in his and my own interests, with your communications. I hope you won't do so. Remember, my warning is given in confidence. It is not fair to give a man such a warning, and then to give him no reason for it, retorted the banker. I will give you my reasons. When? On Thursday night. Will you regard my confidence as sacred until then? You have disturbed me considerably. But I will do so. I should be sorry to alarm Geraldine unnecessarily. I am quite certain you are mistaken. You never saw the Duke until you met him at my house? That I believe to be true, but I cannot say anything further now. I will explain my reasons fully on Thursday night. De Brett rose from his seat. He bade me good-bye, but not with his customary friendliness. I went away to pass the time until Thursday in much anxiety. After grave thought I resolved, if I discovered nothing fresh with regard to Friedeck, to acquaint de Brett with what I knew of Madame Colucci. If Geraldine married the Duke, she should at least do so with her father's eyes opened. I little guessed, however, when I made these plans, what circumstances were about to bring forth. End of chapter 3, part 1「on the following Thursday morning I awoke from a disturbed sleep to find London enveloped in one of the thickest fogs that had been known for some years. The limit of my vision scarcely extended beyond the area railings round which the soot-laden mist clung in a breathless calm. In the course of the morning I received a telegram from de Brett. 
meet me at the bank not later than a quarter past four were the few words which it contained soon after three o'clock i started for my destination avoiding omnibuses and preferring to walk the greater part of the way i arrived at st mark's court at the time named and was just approaching the bank when two men knocked violently against me in the thick fog one of them apologized but before i could make any reply vanished into the surrounding gloom i had caught a glimpse of his features however he was the duke of friedeck across the narrow court at the opposite side of the bank i saw a stream of light from an open door making a blurred gleam in the surrounding darkness i crossed the court to see what this indicated i then discovered that the light came from an old-fashioned eating-house something in the style of the celebrated cock in fleet street as i stood in the shadow the two men who had knocked against me entered the eating-house i returned now to the bank as soon as i arrived the manager came up to me mr de brett was called out about a half an hour ago he said but he has asked you to wait for him here mr head he expects to be back not later than half-past four i seated myself accordingly a clerk brought me the times and I drew up my chair in front of a bright fire. Now and then someone made a desultory remark about the fog, which was thickening in intensity each moment. The time flew by. The bank, of course, closed at four o'clock, but the clerks were busy finishing accounts and putting the place in order for the night. The different tills were emptied of their contents, and the money was taken down to the great vaults where the different safes were kept. The hands of the clock over the mantelpiece pointed to a quarter to five, when the sound of wheels was heard distinctly outside, and the next moment I saw a splendidly equipped brougham and a pair draw up outside the bank. A footman dismounted, and handed the commissionaire a note. This was brought into the office. It was for me. A clerk gave it to me. I glanced at the writing, and saw that the letter was from de Brett. I tore open the envelope, and read as follows. Dear Head, I have been unexpectedly detained at Lynn's Bank in Broad Street, so have sent the brougham for you. Will you come on at once and pick me up at Lynn's? Please ask Derbyshire, the manager, for the keys of the small safe. He will give them to you after he has locked up the strong-room. Yours, Harry de Brett. I turned to the manager. He was an elderly man with grizzled hair and an anxious expression of face. Mr. de Brett wants me to bring the keys of the small safe, I said. I saw the man raise his brows in surprise. That is an unusual request, he answered but of course it must be as mr de brett wishes as a rule either mr fromm or i keep the keys as mr de brett never cares to be troubled with them here is his letter i replied handing it to the manager he read it retaining it in his hand do you object to my keeping this mr head the request is so unusual that i should like to have this note as my authority you can certainly keep the note i said very well sir I shall have to detain you for a few moments, as we have not quite cleared the tills. The keys of all the other safes are kept in the small one. I will bring you the keys of the small safe in a moment or two. The clerks bustled about, the work of the night was quickly accomplished, and shortly after five o'clock I was seated in de Brett's luxurious brougham with the keys of the small safe in my pocket. We went along very slowly, as the fog seemed to grow thicker each moment. Suddenly, as the coachman piloted his way in the direction of Broad Street, I began to feel a peculiar sensation. My head was giddy, an unusual weakness trembled through my nerves, and for the first time I noticed that the brougham was full of a faint, sweet odour. Doubtless the smell of the fog had prevented my observing this at first. The sensation of faintness grew worse, 
and I now made an effort to attract the coachman's attention. This I altogether failed to do, and becoming seriously alarmed I tried to open the door, but it resisted all my efforts, as also did the windows, which were securely fixed. The horrible feeling that I was the victim of some dastardly plot came over me with force. I shouted and struggled to attract attention, and finally tried to break the windows. All in vain. The sense of giddiness grew worse. Everything seemed to whirl before my mental vision. The bank, Debrett, the keys of the safe which I had in my pocket, the thought of Geraldine and her danger, were mixed up in a hideous phantasmagoria. The next moment I had lost consciousness. When I came to myself I found that I was lying on a piece of waste ground which I afterwards found to be in the neighbourhood of Putney. For one or two moments I could not in the least recall what had happened. Then my memory came back with a quick flash. The Duke of Friedeck, the bank, Geraldine, I said to myself. I sprang to my feet and began a hasty examination of my pockets. Yes, my worst conjectures were confirmed, for the keys of the small safe were gone. My watch and money were intact. The keys alone were stolen. I stood still for a moment, half-dazed from the anesthetic fumes, which by some means had been liberated in the brome. Then the need of immediate action came over me, and I made my way at once to the nearest railway station. I found to my relief that it was only a little past eleven o'clock. Beyond doubt, I had recovered consciousness much sooner than the villains who had planned this terrible plot intended. I took the next train to town, and on my way resolved up my line of action. To warn de Brett was impracticable, for the simple reason that he was out of town. To waste time visiting Dufrayer was also not to be thought of. Without the least doubt, the bank was in imminent danger, and I must not lose an unnecessary moment in getting to St. Mark's Court. As I thought over matters, I felt more and more certain that the eating-house facing the bank was a rendezvous for Madame's agents. I hastily resolved, therefore, to disguise myself and go there. Once I had belonged to the infamous Brotherhood. I knew their password. By this means, if my suspicions were true, I could doubtless gain admission. As for the rest, I must leave it to chance. As soon as I reached town, I drove off at once to a theatrical agent, whose acquaintance I had already made. He remembered me, and I explained enough of the situation to induce him to render me assistance. In a very short time I was metamorphosed. By a few judicious touches twenty years were added to my age. A wig of dark hair completely covered my own. My complexion was dyed to a dark olive, and in a thick travelling coat with a high fur collar I scarcely knew myself. My final act was to slip a loaded revolver into my pocket, and then, feeling that I was prepared for the worst, I hurried forth. It was now between twelve and one in the morning, and the fog was denser than ever. Few men knew London better than I do, but once or twice in that perilous journey I lost my way. At last, however, I found myself in St. Mark's Court. I was now breathing with difficulty. The fog was piercing my lungs and hurting my throat. My eyes watered. When I got into the court I heard the steady tramp of the policeman whose duty it was to guard the place at night. Taking no notice of him, I went across the court in the direction of the eating-house. The light within still burned, but dimly. There was a blur visible, nothing more. This came through one of the windows, for the door was shut. I tapped at the door. A man came immediately and opened it. He asked me what my business was. I repeated the password of the society. A change came over his face. My conjectures were verified. I was instantly admitted. 
"'Are you expecting to see a friend here tonight?' said the man. "'It is rather late, and we are just closing.' As he uttered the words, like a flash of lightning, an old memory returned to me. I have said that when I first saw the Duke at de Brett's house, I was puzzled by an intangible likeness. Now I knew who the man really was. In the old days in Naples, an English boy of the name of Drake was often seen in Madame's salons. Drake and the Duke of Friedeck were one and the same. "'I have come here to see Mr. Drake,' I said stoutly. The man nodded. My chance shot had found its belay. "'Mr. Drake is upstairs,' he said. "'Will you find your own way up, or shall I announce you?' "'I will find my own way,' I said. "'He is in the—' "'Room to the front, third floor,' answered the man. He returned to the dining saloon, and I heard the swing door close behind him. Without a moment's hesitation I ascended the stairs. The stairs and passage were in complete darkness. I went up, past the first and second stories, and on to the third. As I approached the landing of the third story, I saw an open door and a gleam of light in a small room which faced the court. The light was caused by a lamp which stood on a deal table, the wick of which was turned down very low. Except the lamp and table, there was no other furniture in the room. I went in and looked around me. The Duke was not present. I was just considering what my next step should be when I heard voices in several steps ascending the stairs. I saw an empty cupboard, the door of which stood ajar. I made for it, and closed the door softly behind me. As the men approached, I slipped the revolver from my pocket and held it in my hand. It was probable that Friedeck had been told of my arrival. If so, he would search for me, and in all probability look in the cupboard. Three or four men at least were coming up the stairs, and I knew that my life was scarcely worth a moment's purchase. I had a wild feeling of regret that I had not summoned the policeman in the court to my aid, and then the men entered the room. When they did so, I breathed a sigh of relief. They talked to one another as if I did not exist. Evidently, the waiter downstairs had thought that my knowledge of the password was all sufficient, and had not troubled himself to mention my appearance on the scene. One of the men went up to the lamp, turned it on to a full blaze, and then placed it in the window. "'That will be sufficient for our purpose,' he said with a laugh. "'Otherwise, with the fog as thick as it is now, the bolt might miss its mark.' "'The thicker the fog, the better,' said another voice, which I recognized as that of the Duke. "'I am quite ready, gentlemen, if you are.' "'All right,' said the man who had first spoken. "'I will go across to Bell's house and fix the rope from the bar outside the window. As the bob of the pendulum you will swing true, Drake, no fear of that. You will swing straight to the balcony, as sure as mathematics. Have you anything else to ask?' "'No,' answered Friedeck. "'I am ready.' Get your part of the work through as quickly as you can. You cannot fail to see this window with the bright light in it. I will have the lower sash open, and be ready to receive the bolt from the crossbow with the light string attached. That will do the business, answered his confederate. When the bolt reaches you, pull in as hard as you can, for the rope will be attached to the light string. The crossbar is here. You have only to attach it to the rope and swing across. Well, all right, I'm off." The man whose mission it was to send the bolt into the open window now left the room, and I heard his footsteps going softly downstairs. I opened the cupboard door about half an inch, and was able to watch the proceedings of the other three men who remained on the scene. The window was softly opened. They spoke in whispers. I could judge by their attitudes that all three were in the highest state of nervous excitement. Presently a low cry of satisfaction from Friedeck reached my ears. 
and something shot into the room and struck against the opposite wall. The next moment the men were pulling in a silken string, to which a wire rope was attached. I then saw the Duke remove his coat. A wooden crossbar was securely fastened to the end of the stout rope. The rope was held outside the window by the two Confederates, and the Duke got upon the window-sill, slipped his legs over the crossbar, and the next instant had disappeared into space. Where he had gone, what he was doing, were mysteries yet to be solved. The men remained for a moment longer beside the window, then they softly closed the sash, and putting out the lamp, left the room. I heard their steps descending the stairs. The sounds died away into utter stillness. I listened intently, and then softly leaving the cupboard approached the window. In the intense darkness caused by the fog, I could not see a yard in front of me. De Brett's bank was in danger. The Duke of Friedeck and his accomplices were burglars. But what the crossbow, the rope, the bolt, the crossbar of wood, and the sudden disappearance of the Duke himself through the open window portended, I could not fathom. My duty, however, was clear. I must immediately give the alarm to the policeman in the court, whose tramp I even now heard coming up to me through the fog. I waited for a few moments longer, and then determined to make my exit. I ran downstairs, treading as softly as I could. I had just reached the little hall and put my hand on the latch of the door when I was accosted. "'Who is there?' said a voice. I replied glibly, "'I am going in search of Drake.' "'You cannot see him. He is engaged,' said the same voice. And now a man came forward. He held a dark lantern in his hand, and suddenly threw its bull's-eye full on my face. Perhaps he saw through my disguise. Anyhow, he must have observed my face was unfamiliar to him. The expression on his own changed to one of alarm. He suddenly made a low and peculiar whistle, and two or three other men entered the hall. The first man said something, the words of which I could not catch, and all four made a rush for me. But the door was on the latch. I burst it open and escaped into the court. The thick fog favored me, and I hoped that I had escaped the gang when a heavy blow on the back of my head rendered me, for the second time, within that ominous twenty-four hours, unconscious. When I awoke I found myself in the ward of a London hospital, and the kind face of a house-surgeon was bending over me. "'Ah, you'll do,' I heard him say. "'You're coming too nicely. You had a nasty blow on your head, though. Don't talk at present. You'll be all right in a couple of hours.' I lay still, feeling bewildered. Figures were moving about the room, and the daylight was streaming in at the windows. I saw a nurse come up and look at me. She bent down. "'You feel better? You are not suffering?' she said. "'I am not,' I replied. "'But how did I get here? What has happened?' A policeman heard you cry, and picked you up unconscious in a place called St. Mark's Court. Someone gave you a bad blow on your head. It is a wonder your skull was not cracked. But you are better. Have you a message to give any one? I must get up immediately, I said. I have not a moment to lose. Something dreadful has happened, and I must see to it. I must leave the hospital at once. Not without the surgeon's permission, said the nurse. Have you any friend you would like to be sent to you? I mentioned Dufrayer's name. The nurse said she would dispatch a messenger immediately to his house and ask him to come to me. I waited with what patience I could. The severe blow had fortunately only stunned me. I was not seriously hurt, and all the events of the preceding night, previous to the blow, presented themselves clearly before my memory. In a little over an hour Dufrayer arrived. His eyes were blazing with excitement. He came up to me, full of consternation. "'What has happened, Head?' he asked. "'Oh, I am all right. Don't bother about me,' I said. 
But listen, Dufrayer, I must go to St. Mark's Court immediately. There is mischief. St. Mark's Court? Are you mad? Have you heard anything? Heard what? I asked. They have done it, that's all, cried Dufrayer. What? I exclaimed. Well, there's the very devil to pay in the city this morning. Debrett's bank was broken into last night. The night watchman seriously injured, and securities and cash to the tune of one hundred thousand pounds taken from the strong-room, and the man has got clean away. Your messenger from here followed me to the bank. Tyler is there, and Debrett. The daring of the robbery is unparalleled. I can throw light on this matter, I said. Get the surgeon to give me leave to go, Defrayer. There is not a moment to lose if we are to catch the scoundrel. I must accompany you to the bank. Well, you seem all right, old chap, and if you have anything to say— I have, I cried impatiently. See the surgeon. I must get off immediately. Defrayer did as I requested him. The surgeon shook his head over what he called my imprudence, but said he could not detain me against my will. Defrayer and I stepped into a hansom, and on my way to the bank I repeated my strange adventures of the previous night. "'Did ever any one hear of another man doing such a foolhardy thing?' cried Defrayer. "'What possessed you to enter that hell alone beats my comprehension.' "'Never mind that now,' I replied. "'Remember, I knew the Brotherhood. My one chance consisted in going alone. Thank goodness the fog has risen.' A light breeze was blowing over the city, and as we entered St. Mark's Court, a ray of sunshine cast a watery gleam over the old smoke-begrimed buildings. We entered the bank and found a Brett, his manager, two police inspectors, and Tyler's agent awaiting us. The Brett exclaimed when he saw sight of me, "'Ah, oh, Head, here's a pretty business. I'm a ruined man. The bank cannot stand a blow of this kind.' "'Courage,' I replied. "'We may be able to put things right yet. I have a story to tell. Mr. Derbyshire, you have doubtless kept the note which Mr. De Brett wrote to me last night.' "'The note I wrote to you?' cried De Brett. "'What do you mean?' "'Will you produce the note?' I said to the manager. The man brought it and put it into his chief's hand. De Brett read it with increasing amazement. "'But I never put pen to paper on such a fool's errand,' he cried. "'Why, I never take the keys of the small safe. Derbyshire and Fromm have charge of them. Head, this note is a forgery. What in the name of heaven does it mean?' "'It meant for me a brome which was a death-trap,' I replied. "'And it also meant the most dastardly scheme to rob you, and perhaps murder me, which has ever been conceived. But listen, let me tell you my story.' I did so, amidst the breathless silence of the spectators. "'And now,' I continued, "'the best thing we can do, gentlemen, is to go across to the house from which the bolt was shot. It is possible that we may see something in that upper room which will explain the manner in which the burglar entered the bank.' "'I am at your service, Mr. Head,' said Inspector Brown, in a cheerful tone. "'A mystery of this sort is quite to my mind. All the same, sir,' he continued, as he and I took the lead of the little procession which crossed St. Mark's Court. I cannot imagine how any man got into that window of the bank on the second floor without wings. There is a constable on patrol in the court all night, so ladders are out of the question. The annihilation of gravity is a new departure in the burglar's art. We had now reached the building which faced the court, and which was between the bank and the eating-house. It was composed entirely of offices. We went up at once to the top floor. The door of the room which faced the court was locked. The inspector took a step back, and flinging his shoulders against it, it flew open. The room was bare and unoccupied, but as we entered, Inspector Brown uttered a cry. "'Here is the confirmation of your story, Mr. Head.' As he spoke, he lifted up a coil of strong rope, which lay in a corner of the room. 
Attached to it was a crossbar of wood. A strong iron bar with a hook at one end and a crossbow also lay in the neighborhood of the rope. "'The thing is as clear as daylight,' I exclaimed. "'I could not put two and two together last night, for the fog fairly bewildered me, but now I see the whole scheme. Let me explain.' This rope was sent by means of the crossbow across to the window in the eating-house. To the bolt of the crossbow was attached a silken cord, to which again the rope was fastened. The man who swung himself out of the window by the rope last night acted as the bob of the pendulum, and so reached the window of the bank. Swinging through the eating-house window, and rising to the balcony opposite the bank window, he then doubtless seized the handle of the outside frame, and settling on the balcony, cut out the glass with a diamond." "'We will go at once and see the room in the eating-house,' said the inspector. We did so, and found to our amazement that the door of the eating-house was locked and the place empty. After some slight difficulty we got the door burst open and went upstairs. Here we found the final confirmation of my words, the silken string which had been attached to the rope and cut from it before the Duke made his aerial flight. "'But who did it?' cried de Brett. "'We must secure the scoundrel without a moment's delay.' for amongst other things he has stolen the duke of friedeck's priceless securities the diamonds by the way continued the banker where is the duke i sent him a telegram and expected him here before now an ominous silence fell upon every one de brett's face grew white he looked at me for god's sake speak he cried have you anything else to confide you must be prepared for bad news de brett i said i went up and laid my hand on my old friend's shoulders Thank God I was in time. Your little girl is saved from the most awful fate which could overtake any woman. The man who committed the burglary was known to you as the Duke of Friedeck. De Brett stepped back. His face changed from white to purple. Then that accounts for the telegrams, he said. I received two yesterday, one from you telling me to expect you by a late train at Forest Manor, the other from that scoundrel. In it he said that he was unexpectedly detained in town. Doubtless, both telegrams were sent by the same man. "'Without doubt,' I replied. The whole thing was carefully planned, and not a stone left unturned to secure the success of this most dastardly scheme. But to Brett, I have one more thing to say. There is no Duke of Friedeck. It was an assumed name. I am prepared to swear to the man's real identity when the police have secured him. The remainder of this story can be told in a few words. The ruffian who had posed as the Duke of Friedeck was captured a few days later, but the greater part of the securities and money which he had stolen were never recovered. Doubtless Madame Colucci had them in her possession. The man passed through his trial and received his sentence, but that has nothing to do with the story. By the energetic aid of his many friends, de Brett escaped ruin, and his bank still exists and prospers. He is a sadder and a wiser man. End of chapter 3《Chapter Four of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.《The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings》by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Four The Luck of Pitsy Hall. As the days and weeks went on, Madame Colucci became more than ever the talk of London. The medical world agitated itself about her to an extraordinary degree. It was useless to gainsay the fact that she performed marvellous cures. Under her influence and treatment, weak people became strong again, 
those who stood at the door of the shadow of death returned to their intercourse with the busy world. Beneath her spell, pain vanished. What she did and how she did it remained more than ever a secret. She dispensed her own prescriptions, but although some of her medicines were analyzed by experts, nothing in the least extraordinary could be discovered in their composition. The cure did not therefore lie in drugs. In what did it consist? Doctors asked this question one of another, and could find no satisfactory answer. The rage to consult Madame became stronger and stronger. Her patients adored her. The magnetic influence which she exercised was felt by each person with whom she came in contact. Meanwhile, Dufrayer and I watched and waited. The detective officers in Scotland Yard knew of some of our views with regard to this woman. Led by Dufrayer, they were ceaselessly on the alert, but try as the most able of their staff did, they could learn nothing of Madame Colucci which was not to her credit. She was spoken of as a universal benefactress, taking, it is true, large fees from those who could afford to pay, but, on the other hand, giving her services freely to the people to whom money was scarce. This woman could scarcely walk down the street without heads being turned to look after her, and this was not only on account of her remarkable beauty, but still more because of her genius and goodness. As she passed by, blessings were showered upon her, and if the person who called down these benedictions was rewarded by even one glance from those lovely and brilliant eyes, he counted himself happy. About the middle of January the attention of London was diverted from Madame Colucci to a murder of a particularly mysterious character. A member of the cabinet of the name of Delacour was found dead in St. James Park. His body was discovered in the early morning, in the neighborhood of Marlborough House, with a wound straight through the heart. Death must have been instantaneous. He was stabbed from behind, which showed the cowardly nature of the attack. I knew Delacour, and for many reasons was appalled when the tidings reached me. As far as anyone could tell, he had no enemies. He was a man in the prime of life, of singular power of mind and strength of character, and the only possible motive for the murder seemed to be to wrest some important state secrets from his possession. He had been attending a cabinet meeting in Downing Street, and was on his way home when the dastardly deed was committed. Certain memoranda respecting a loan to a foreign government were abstracted from his person, but his watch, a valuable ring, and some money were left intact. The police immediately put measures in active train to secure the murderer, but no clue could be obtained. Delacour's wife and only daughter were broken-hearted. His position as a cabinet minister was so well known that not only his family, but the whole country rang with horror at the dastardly crime, and it was fervently hoped that before long the murderer would be arrested and receive the punishment which he so justly merited. On a certain evening, about a fortnight after this event, as I was walking slowly down Welbeck Street, and was just about to pass the door of Madame Colucci's splendid mansion, I saw a young girl come down the steps. She was dressed in deep mourning, and glanced around from right to left, evidently searching for a passing hansom. Her face arrested me, her eyes met mine, and with a slight cry she took a step forward. "'You are Mr. Head?' she exclaimed. "'And you are Vivian Delacour,' I replied. "'I am glad to meet you again. Don't you remember the Hotel Bellevue at Brussels?' When I spoke her name, she colored perceptively and began to tremble. Suddenly, putting out one of her hands, she laid it on my arm. "'I am glad to see you again,' she said in a whisper. "'You know of our—our most terrible tragedy?' "'I do,' I replied. "'Mother is completely prostrated from the shock. The murder was so sudden and mysterious. If it were not for Madame—' "'Madame Colucci?' I queried. "'Yes, Mr. Head. Madame Colucci, the best and dearest friend we have in the world.' She was attending mother professionally at the time of the murder, and since then has been with her daily, 
On that first terrible day she scarcely left us. I don't know what we should have done were it not for her great tact and kindness. She is full of suggestions, too, for the capture of the wretch who took my dear father's life. "'You look shaken yourself,' I said. "'Ought you to be out alone at this hour?' "'I have just seen Madame with a message from Mother, and am waiting here for a hansom. If you would be so kind as to call one, I should be much indebted to you.' "'Can I do anything to help you, Vivian?' I said. "'You know you only have to command me.' A hansom drew up at the pavement as I spoke. Vivian's sad grey eyes were fixed on my face. "'Find the man who killed my father,' she said. "'We shall never rest until we know who took his life.' "'May I call at your house to-morrow morning?' I asked suddenly. "'If you will be satisfied with seeing me, Mother will admit no one to her presence but Madame Colucci. I will come to see you then.' Expect me at eleven. I helped Miss Delacour into her hansom, gave directions to the driver, and she was quickly bowled out of sight. On my way home many thoughts coursed through my brain. A year ago the Delacours, a family of the name of Pitsy, and I, made friends while travelling through Belgium. The Pitsies of old Italian origin owned a magnificent place not far from Tunbridge Wells. The Pitsies and the Delacours were distant cousins. Vivian at that time was only sixteen, and she and I became special chums. She used to tell me all about her ambitions and hopes, and in particular descanted on the museum of rare curios which her cousins, the Pitsies, possessed at their splendid place, Pitsy Hall. I had a standing invitation to visit the hall at any time, when I happened to have leisure, but up to the present had not availed myself of it. Memories of that gay time thronged upon me as I hurried to my own house, but mixed with the old reminiscences was an inconceivable sensation of horror. Why was Madame Colucci a friend of the Delacours? My mind had got into such a disordered state that I, more or less, associated her with any crime which was committed. Hating myself for what I considered pure morbidness, I arrived at my own house. There I was told that Dufrayer was waiting to see me. I hurried into my study to greet him. He came eagerly forward. "'Have you any news?' I cried. "'If you allude to Delacour's murder, I have.' he answered. "'Then, pray, speak quickly,' I said. "'Well,' he continued, "'a curious development, and one which may have the most profoundly important bearing on the murder, has just taken place. It is in connection with it that I have come to see you.' Dufrayer stood up as he spoke. He never liked to be interrupted, and I listened attentively without uttering a syllable. "'Yesterday,' he continued, "'a man was arrested on suspicion. He was examined this morning before the magistrate at Dow Street. His name is Walter Hunt.' He is the keeper of a small marine store at Houndsditch. For several nights he has been found hovering, in a suspicious manner, round the Delacour's house. On being questioned, he could give no straightforward account of himself, and the police thought it best to arrest him. On his person was discovered an envelope, addressed to himself, bearing the city postmark and the date of the day the murder was committed. Inside the envelope was an absolutely blank sheet of paper. Thinking this might be a communication of importance, it was submitted to George Lambert, the government expert at Scotland Yard, for examination. He subjected it to every known test in order to see if it contained any writing on sympathetic ink or some other secret cipher principles. The result is absolutely negative, and Lambert firmly declares that it is a blank sheet of paper and of no value. I heard all these particulars from Ford, the superintendent in charge of the case, and knowing of your knowledge of chemistry and the quantity of odds and ends of curious information you possess on these matters, I obtained leave that you should come with me to Scotland Yard and submit the paper to any further tests you know of. I felt sure you would be willing to do this. Certainly, I replied. Shall I come with you now? I wish you would. 
If the paper contains any hidden cipher, the sooner it is known, the better. One moment first, I said. I have just met Vivian Delacour. She was coming out of Madame Colucci's house. It is strange how that woman gets to know all one's friends and acquaintances. I forgot that you knew the Delacours, said Defrayer. A year ago, I replied, I seemed to know them well. When we were in Brussels, we were great friends. Vivian looked ill and in great trouble. I would give the world to help her, but I earnestly wished she did not know Madame. It may be morbidness on my part, but lately I never hear of any crime being committed in London without instantly associating Madame Colucci with it. She has got that girl more or less under her spell, and Vivian herself informed me that she visits her mother daily. Be assured of this, Dufrayer, the woman is after no good. As I spoke, I saw the lawyer's face darken, and the cold, hard expression I knew so well came into it, but he did not speak a word. "'I am at your service now,' I said. "'Just let me go to my laboratory first. I have some valuable notes on these ciphers which I will take with me.' A moment later, Dufrayer and I found ourselves in a hansom on our way to Scotland Yard. There we were met by Superintendent Ford, and also by George Lambert, a particularly intelligent-looking man who favoured me with a keen glance from under shaggy brows. "'I have heard of you, Mr. Head,' he said courteously, and shall be only too pleased if you can discover what I have failed to do. The sheet of paper in question is the sort on which ciphers are often written, but all my reagents have failed to produce the slightest effect. My fear is that they may possibly have destroyed the cipher, should such a thing exist. "'That is certainly possible,' I said. "'But if you will take me to your laboratory, I will submit the paper to some rather delicate tests of my own.' The expert at once led the way, and Dufrayer, Superintendent Ford, and I followed him. When we reached the laboratory, Lambert put all possible tests at my disposal. A glance at the stain on the paper before me showed that cobalt, copper, etc., had been already applied. These tests had, in all probability, nullified any further chemical tests I might try, and had destroyed the result, even if there were some secret writing on the paper. I spent some time trying the more delicate and less known tests, with no success. Presently I rose to my feet. "'It is useless,' I said. "'I can do nothing with this paper. It is rather a presumption on my part to attempt it after you, Mr. Lambert, have given your ultimatum. I am inclined to agree with you that the paper is valueless.' Lambert bowed, and a look of satisfaction crept over his face. Dufrayer and I soon afterwards took our leave. As we did so, I heard my friend utter a quick sigh. "'We are only beating the air as yet,' he said. "'We must trust that justice and right will win the day at last.' He parted from me at the corner of the street, and I returned to my own house. On the following day, at the appointed hour, I went to see Vivian Delacour. She received me in her mother's boudoir. Here the blinds were partly down, and the whole room had a desolate aspect. The young girl herself looked pale and sad, years older than she had done in the happy days at Brussels. "'Mother was pleased when I told her that I met you yesterday,' she exclaimed. "'Sit down, won't you, Mr. Head? You and my father were great friends during that happy time at the Bellevue. Yes, I feel certain of your sympathy.' "'You may be assured of it,' I said, "'and I earnestly wish I could give you more than sympathy.' Would it be too painful to give me some particulars in connection with the murder? She shuddered quite perceptibly. You must have read all there is to know in the newspapers, she said. I can tell you nothing more. My father left us on that dreadful day to attend a cabinet meeting at Downing Street. He never returned home. The police look in vain for the murderer. There seems no motive for the horrible crime. Father had no enemies. Here the poor girl sobbed without restraint. I allowed her grief to have its way for a few moments, then I spoke. "'Listen, Vivian,' I said, 
I promise you that I will not leave a stone unturned to discover the man or woman who killed your father, but you must help me by being calm and self-collected. Grief like this is quite natural, but it does no good to anyone. Try, my dear girl, to compose yourself. You say there was no motive for the crime, but surely some important memoranda were stolen from your father? His pocket-book in which he often made notes was removed, but nothing more, neither his watch nor his money. Surely no one would murder him for the sake of securing that pocket-book, Mr. Head. It is possible, I answered gloomily. The memoranda contained in the book may have held clues to government secrets, remember. Vivian looked as if she scarcely understood. Once more my thoughts travelled to Madame Colucci. She was a strange woman. She dealt in colossal crimes. Her influence permeated society through and through. With her a life more or less was not of the slightest consequence. And this terrible woman, whom, up to the present, the laws of England could not touch, was the intimate friend of the young girl by my side. Vivian moved uneasily, and presently rose. "'I am glad you are going to help us,' she said, looking at me earnestly. "'Madam does all she can, but we cannot have too many friends on our side, and we are all aware of your wisdom, Mr. Head. Why do you not consult Madam?' I shook my head. "'But you are friends, are you not? I told her only this morning how I had met you.' "'We are acquaintances, but not friends,' I replied. "'Indeed, you astonish me. You cannot imagine how useful she is, and how many suggestions she throws out. By the way, mother and I leave London to-day.' "'Where are you going?' I asked. "'Away from here. It is quite too painful to remain any longer in this house. The shock has completely shattered mother's nerves, and she is now under Madame Colucci's care. Madame has just taken a house in the country, called Fram Manor, it is not far from our cousins, the Pitsies. You remember them? You met them in Brussels. I nodded. We are going there to-day, continued Vivian. Of course we shall see no one, but Mother will be under the same roof with Madame, and thus will have the benefit of her treatment day and night. Soon afterwards I took my leave. All was suspicion and uncertainty, and no definite clue had been obtained. About this time I began to be haunted by an air which had sprung like a mushroom into popularity. It was called the Queen Waltz, and it was scarcely possible to pick up a dance program without seeing it. There was something fascinating about its swinging measure, its almost dreamy refrain, and its graceful alternations of harmony and unison. No one knew who had really composed it, and still less did any one for a moment dream that its pleasant chords contained a dark or subtle meaning. As I listened to it on more than one occasion, at more than one concert, for I am a passionate lover of music, and seldom spend an afternoon without listening to it, I little guessed all that the Queen Waltz would bring forth. I was waiting for a clue. How could I tell that all too late, and by such unlikely means, it would be put into my hands? A month and even six weeks went by, and although the police were unceasing in their endeavours to gain a trace of the murderer, they were absolutely unsuccessful. Once or twice during this interval I had letters from Vivian Delacour. She wrote with the passion and impetuosity of a very young girl. She was anxious about her mother, who was growing steadily weaker, and was losing her self-restraint more and more as the long weeks glided by. Madame Colucci was anxious about her. Madame's medicines, her treatment, her soothing powers, were on this occasion destitute of results. "'Nothing will rest her,' said Vivian, in conclusion, "'until the murderer is discovered. She dreams of him night and day. During the daytime she is absolutely silent, or she paces the room in violent agitation, crying out to God to help her to discover him. Oh, Mr. Head, what is to be done? The child's letters appealed to me strongly. 
I was obliged to answer her with extreme care, as I knew that Madame would see what I wrote, but none the less were all my faculties at work on her behalf. From time to time I thought of the mysterious blank sheet of paper. Was it possible that it contained a cipher? Was one of those old, incomparable, magnificent undiscovered ciphers, which belonged to the ancient brotherhood, really concealed beneath its blank surface? That blank sheet of paper mingled with my dreams, and worried me during my wakeful hours. I became nearly as restless as Vivian herself, and when a letter of a more despairing nature than usual arrived on a certain morning towards the end of February, I felt that I could no longer remain inactive. I would answer Vivian's letter in person. To do so, I had but to accept my standing invitation to Pitsey Hall. I wrote, therefore, to my friend, Leonardo Pitsey, suggesting that if it were convenient to him and his wife, I should like to go to Pitsey Hall on the following Saturday. The next afternoon Pitsey himself called to see me. "'I received your letter this morning, and having to come to town today, thought I would look you up,' he cried. "'I have to catch a train at five-thirty, so cannot stay a minute. We shall be delighted to welcome you at the hall. My wife and I have never forgotten you, Head. You will be, I assure you, a most welcome guest. By the way, have you heard of our burglary?' "'No,' I answered. "'You do not read your paper, then. It is an extraordinary affair. Crime seems to be in the air just now.' The hall was attacked by burglars last week, a most daring and cunningly planned affair. Some plate was stolen, but the plate-chest, built on the newest principles, was untampered with. There was a desperate attempt made, however, to get into the large drawing-room, where all our valuable curios are kept. Drugo, the mastiff who is loose about the house at night, was found poisoned outside the drawing-room door. Luckily the butler awoke in time, gave the alarm, and the rascals bolted. The country police have been after them, and in despair I have come up to Scotland Yard and engaged a couple of their best detectives. They come down with me to-night, and I trust we shall soon get the necessary clue to the capture of the burglars. My fear is that if they are not arrested they will try again, for, I assure you, the old place is worth robbing. But there, I ought not to worry you about my domestic concerns. We shall have a gay party on Saturday, for my oldest boy, Ottavio, comes of age next week, and the event is to be celebrated by a great ball in his honour. "'How are the Delacours?' I interrupted. "'Vivian keeps fairly well, but her mother is a source of great anxiety. Madame Colucci and Vivian are constant guests at the hall. The Delacours return to town before the ball, but Madame will attend it. It will be an honour and a great attraction to have such a lioness for the occasion. Do you know her head? She is quite charming.' "'I have met her,' I replied. "'Ah, that is capital. You and she are just the sort to hit it off. It's all right, then, and we shall expect you. A good train leaves Charing Cross at four-thirty. I will send the trap to meet you. Thank you, I answered. I shall be glad to come to Pitsey Hall, but I do not know that I can stay as long as the night of the ball. Once we get you in our clutches, Head, we won't let you go. My young people are all anxious to renew their acquaintance with you. Don't you remember little Antonia, my pretty songstress, as I call her? Vivian, too, talks of you as one of her greatest friends. Poor child, I pity her from my heart. She is a sweet, gentle girl, but such a shock as she has sustained may leave its mark for life. Poor Delacour, the very best of men. The fact is, I should like to postpone the ball on account of the Delacours, although they are very distant cousins, but Ottavio only comes of age once in his life, and under the circumstances we feel that we must go through with it. Pon my word, Head, when I think of that poor child and her mother, I have little heart for festivities. However, that is neither here nor there. We shall expect you on Saturday. As Pitsy spoke, he took up his hat. I must be off now, he said for I have to meet the two detectives at Charing Cross by appointment. End of chapter 4, part 1
Chapter Four, Part Two of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Four: The Luck of Pitsey Hall, Part Two. On the following Saturday, the twenty-seventh, I arrived at Pitsey Hall where a warm welcome awaited me. The ball was to be on the following Tuesday, the 2nd of March. There was a large house-party, and the late burglary was still the topic of conversation. After dinner, when the ladies had left the dining-room, Pitsy and I drew our chairs together, and presently the conversation drifted to Mrs. Delacour, the mysterious murder, and Madame Colucci. "'The police are completely nonplussed,' said Pitsy. "'I doubt if the man who committed that rascally crime will ever be brought to justice.' I was speaking to Madame on the subject to-day, and although she was very hopeful when she first arrived at Fromm Manor, she is now almost inclined to agree with me. By the way, Mrs. Delacour's state is most alarming. She loses strength, hour by hour. I can quite understand that, I replied. If the murderer were discovered, it would be an immense relief to her. So Madame says. I know she is terribly anxious about her patient. By the way, knowing that she was an acquaintance of yours, I asked her here to-night— but unfortunately she had another engagement which she could not postpone. What a wonderfully well-informed woman she is! She spent hours at the hall this morning examining my curios. She gave me information about some of them which was news to me. But she has been many times now round my collection. It is a positive treat to talk with any one so intelligent. And if she were not so keen about my Venetian goblet— What? I interrupted. The goblet you spoke to me about in Brussels? The one which has been in your family since fifteen hundred? "'The same,' he answered, nodding his head, and lowering his voice a trifle. "'It has been in the family, as you say, since fifteen hundred. Madame has shown bad taste in the matter, and I am surprised at her.' "'Pray explain yourself,' I said. "'She first saw it last November, when she came here with the Delacours. I shall never forget her stare of astonishment. She stood perfectly still for at least two minutes, gazing at it without speaking. When she turned round at last she was white as a ghost, and asked me where I got it from.' I told her, and she offered me ten thousand pounds for it on the spot. A large figure, I remarked. I was much annoyed, continued Pitsy, and told her I would not sell it at any price. Did she give any reason for wishing to obtain it? Yes. She said she had a goblet very like it in her own collection, and wished to purchase this one, in order to complete one of the most unique collections of old Venetian glass in England. The woman must be fabulously rich, or even her passion for curios would not induce her to offer so preposterous a sum. Since her residence at Fromm Manor, she has been constantly here, and still takes, I can see, the deepest interest in the goblet, often remarking about it. She says it has got quite a remarkably pure musical note, very clear and distinct. But come, Head, you would like to see it. We will go into the drawing-room, and I will show it to you. As Pitsy spoke, he rose, and led me through the great central hall into the inner drawing-room, a colossal apartment, supported by Corinthian pillars, and magnificently decorated. "'As you know, the goblet has been in our family for many centuries,' he went on. "'And we call it, from Euland's ballad of the old Cumberland tradition, the luck of Pitsy Hall. You know Longfellow's translation, of course. Here it is, Head. Is it not a wonderful piece of work? Have a close look at it. It is worth examining.' The goblet in question stood about six feet from the ground on a pedestal of solid malachite, which was placed in a niche in the wall. One glance was sufficient to show me that it was a gem of art. The cup, which was eight inches in diameter, was made of thin glass of a pale ruby color. 
Some mystical letters were etched on the outside of the glass, small portions of which could be seen, but screening them from any closer interpretation was some twisted fancy work, often to be observed on old Venetian goblets. If by any chance this fancy work were chipped off, the letters would be plainly visible. The cup itself was supported on an open-work stem, richly gilt and enameled, with colored filigree work, the whole supported again on a base set with opal, agate, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and pearl. From the center of the cup, and in reality supporting it, was a central column of pale green glass, which bore what was apparently some heraldic design. Stepping up close, I tapped the cup gently with my finger. It gave out, as Pitsy had described, a note of music singularly sweet and clear. I then proceeded to examine the stem, and saw at once that the design formed a row of separate crowns. Scarcely knowing why, I counted them. There were seven. A queer suspicion crept over me. The sequence of late events passed rapidly through my mind, and a strange relationship between circumstances, apparently having no connection, began to appear. I turned to Pitsy. "'Can you tell me how this goblet came into your possession?' I asked. "'Certainly,' he replied. "'The legend which is attached to this goblet is this. We are, as you know, descended from an old Italian family, the Pizzi's, our present name being merely an anglicized corruption of the Italian. My children and I still bear Italian Christian names, as you know, and our love of the old country amounts almost to a passion. The Pizzi's were great people in Venice in the sixteenth century. At that time the city had an immense fame for its beautiful glass, the manufacturers forming a guild, and the secret being jealously kept. It was during this time that Catherine de' Medici, by her arbitrary and tyrannical administration, roused the opposition of a Catholic party, at whose head was the Duke of Alençon, her own fourth son. Among the Duke's followers was my ancestor, Giovanni Pizzi. It was discovered that an order had been sent by Catherine de' Medici to one of the manufacturers at Venice to construct that very goblet which you see there. After its construction it was for some secret purpose sent to the laboratory of an alchemist in Venice, where it was seized by Giovanni Pizzi, and has been handed down in our family ever since. But what is the meaning of the seven crowns on the stem? I asked. That I cannot tell. They probably have no special significance. I thought otherwise, but kept my ideas to myself. We turned away. A beautiful young voice was filling the drawing-room with sweetness. I went up to the piano to listen to Antonia Pizzi, while she sang an Italian song as only one who had Italian blood in her veins could. Antonia was a beautiful girl, dark, with luminous eyes and an air of distinction about her. "'I wish you would tell me something about your friend Vivian,' I said, as she rose from the piano. "'Oh, Mr. Head, I am so unhappy about her,' was the low reply. "'I see her very often. She is altogether changed, and as to Mrs. Delacour, the shock has been so sudden, so terrible, that I doubt she will ever recover. Mr. Head, I am so glad you have come. Vivian constantly speaks of you. She wants to see you to-morrow.' "'Is she coming here?' "'No, but you can meet her in the park. She has sent you a message. To-morrow is Sunday. Vivian is not going to church. May I take you to the rendezvous?' I promised, and soon afterwards the evening came to an end. That night I was haunted by three main thoughts—the old Italian legend of the goblet, the seven crowns, symbolic of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings, and, finally, Madame's emotion when she first saw it, and her strong desire to obtain it. I wondered had the burglary been committed by her instigation. Sleep I could not. My brain was too active and busy. I was certain there was mischief ahead, but try as I would I could only lose myself in strange conjectures. The following day I met Miss Delacour, as arranged, in the park. 
Antonia brought me to her and then left us together. The young girl's worn face, the pathetic expression in her large grey eyes, her evident nervousness and want of self-control, all appealed to me to a terrible degree. She asked me eagerly if any fresh clue had been obtained with regard to the murderer. I shook my head. "'If something is not done soon, Mother will lose her senses,' she remarked. "'Even Madame Colucci is in despair about her. All her ordinary modes of treatment fail in Mother's case, and the strangest thing is, is that Mother has begun to take a most queer and unaccountable dislike to Madame herself. She says that Madame's presence in the room gives her an uncontrollable feeling of nervousness. This has become so bad that Mother and I return to town to-morrow. My cousin's house is too gay for us at present, and Mother refuses to stay any longer under Madame Colucci's roof. "'But why?' I asked. "'That I cannot explain to you. For my part, I think Madame one of the best women on earth. She has been kindness itself to us, and I do not know what we should have done without her.' I did not speak, and Vivian continued, after a pause. "'Mother's conduct makes Madame strangely unhappy. She told me so, and I pity her from my heart. We had a long talk on the subject yesterday. That was just before she began to speak of the goblet, and before Mr. Lewisham arrived. "'Mr. Lewisham? Who is he?' I asked. "'A great friend of Madame's. He comes to see her almost daily. He is very handsome, and I like him, but I did not know she was expecting him yesterday. She and I were in the drawing-room. She spoke of Mother, and then alluded to the goblet, the one at the hall. You have seen it, of course, Mr. Head?' I nodded. I was too much interested to interrupt the girl by words. "'My cousins call it the luck of Pitsy Hall. Well, Madame has set her heart on obtaining it, and she has gone to the length of offering Cousin Leonardo ten thousand pounds for it.' "'Mr. Pitsy told me last night that Madame had offered an enormous sum for the vase,' I said. "'But it is useless, as he has no intention of selling.' "'I told Madame so,' replied Vivian. "'I know well what value my cousins place upon the old glass.' I believe they think their luck would really go, if anything happened to it. "'Heaven forbid!' I replied involuntarily. "'It is a perfect gem of its kind.' "'I know, I know. I never saw Madame so excited and unreasonable about anything. She begged of me to use my influence to try and get my cousin to let her have it. When I assured her that it was useless, she looked more annoyed than I had ever seen her. She took up a book and pretended to read. I went and sat behind one of the curtains near a window.' The next moment Mr. Lewisham was announced. He came eagerly up to Madame. I don't think he saw me. "'Well,' he cried, "'any success? Have you secured it yet? If you have, we are absolutely safe. Has that child helped you?' I guessed that they were talking about me, and started up and disclosed myself. Madame did not take the slightest notice, but she motioned to Mr. Lewisham to come into another room. What can it all mean, Mr. Head? "'That I cannot tell you, Vivian, but may I ask you one thing?' "'Certainly you may. "'Will you promise me to keep what you have just told me a secret from anybody else? "'I allude to Madame's anxiety to obtain the old goblet. "'There may be nothing in what I ask, or there may be much. "'Will you do this?' "'Of course I will. "'How queer you look!' "'I made no remark, and soon afterwards took my leave of her. "'Late that same evening, Antonia Pitsy received a note from Vivian, "'in which she said that Madame Colucci, her mother and herself, were returning to town by an early train the following morning. The Delacours did not intend to come back to Fromm Manor, but Madame would do so on Tuesday, in order to be in time for the great ball. She was going to town now, in order to be present at an early performance of For the Crown at the Lyceum, having secured a box on the grand tier for the occasion. This note was commented on without any special interest being attached to it, but restless already, I now quickly made up my mind. 
I would also go up to town on the following day. I also would return to Pitsy Hall in time for the ball. Accordingly, at an early hour on the following day, I found myself in Defrayer's office. "'I tell you what it is,' I said. "'There is some plot, deeper than we think, brewing. Madame took Fram Manor after the murder of Delacour. She would not do so without a purpose. She is willing to spend ten thousand pounds in order to secure a goblet of old Venetian glass, which is one of the curios at Pitsy Hall. A man called Lewisham, who doubtless bears another alias, is in her confidence.' Madame returns to town to-night with a definite motive. I have not the slightest doubt. "'This is all very well, Norman,' replied Defrayer. "'But what we want are facts. You will lose your senses if you go on building up fantastic ideas. Madame comes up to town and is going to the Lyceum, at least, so you tell me.' "'Yes.' "'And you mean to follow her, to see if she has any designs on Forbes Robertson or Mrs. Patrick Campbell?' "'I mean to follow her,' I replied gravely. "'I mean to see what sort of man Lewisham is.' it is possible that I may have seen him before. Defrayer shrugged his shoulders and turned away somewhat impatiently. As he did so, a wild thought suddenly struck me. "'What would you say,' I cried, "'if I suggested an idea to force Madame to divulge some clue to us?' "'My dear Norman, I should say that your fancies are getting the better of your reason, that is all.' "'Now listen to me,' I said. I sat down beside Defrayer. "'I have an idea which may serve us well. It is, of course, a bare chance.' and if you like you may call it the conception of a madman. Madame goes to the Lyceum to-night. She occupies a box on the grand tier. In all probability Lewisham will accompany her. Dufrayer, you and I will also be at the theatre, and if possible we will take a box on the second tier exactly opposite to hers. I will bring Robertson, the principal, and the trainer of the new deaf and dumb college with me. I happen to know him well. Dufrayer stared at me with some alarm in his face. Don't you see— I went on excitedly. Robertson is a master of the art of lip-language. We will keep him in the back of the box. About the middle of the play, and in one of the intervals when the electric light is full on, we will send a note to Madame's box, saying that the cipher on the blank sheet of paper has been read. The note will pretend to be an anonymous warning to her. We shall watch her, and by means of Robertson, hear, yes, hear, what she says. Robertson will watch her through opera-glasses, and he will be able to understand every word she speaks, just as you or I could if we were in her box beside her. The whole thing is a bare chance, I know, but we may learn something by taking her unsuspecting and unawares. Dufrayer thought for a minute, then he sprang to his feet. Magnificent! he cried. Head, you are an extraordinary man. It is a unique idea. I will go off to the box office at once, and take a box, if possible, opposite Madame, or failing that, the best seats we can get. I only hope you can secure Robertson. Go to his house at once, and offer him any fee he wants. This is detection carried to a fine art with a vengeance. If successful, I shall class you as the smartest criminal agent of the day. We both meet at the Lyceum at a quarter to eight. Now there is not a moment to lose. I drove down to Robertson's house in Brompton, found him at home, and told him my wish. I strongly impressed upon him that if he would help he would be aiding in the cause of justice. He became keenly interested, entered fully into the situation, and refused to accept any fee. At the appointed hour we met Dufrayer at the theatre door, and learned that he had secured a box on the second tier directly opposite Madame Colucci's box on the grand tier. I had arranged to have my letter sent by a messenger at ten o'clock. We took our seats, and a few moments later Madame Colucci, in rose-coloured velvet and blazing with diamonds, accompanied by a tall, dark, clean-shaven man, entered her box. I drew back into the shadow of my own box and watched her. She bowed to one or two acquaintances in the stalls, then sat down, leaning her arm on the plush-covered edge of her box. 
Robertson never took his eyes off her, and I felt reassured as he repeated to us the chance bits of conversation that he could catch between her and her companion. The play began, and a few minutes past ten in one of the intervals I saw Madame turn and receive my note, with a slight gesture of surprise. She tore it open, and her face paled perceptibly. Robertson, as I had instructed him, stood in front of me. His opera glasses were fixed on the faces of Madame and her companion. I watched Madame as she read the note. She then handed it to Lewisham, who read it also. They looked at each other, and I saw Madame's lips moving. Simultaneously, Robertson began to make the following report verbatim. Impossible. Some trick. Quite safe. Goblet key to cipher. Tomorrow night. Then followed a pause. Life and death to us. Signed. My name. There was another long pause, and I saw Madame twist the paper nervously in her fingers. I looked at Dufrayer. Our eyes met. My heart was beating. His face had become drawn and grey. The ghastly truth and the explanation were slowly sealing their impress upon our brains. The darkness of doubt had lifted. The stunning truth was clear. The paper which had defied us was a cipher written by Madame in her own name, and doubtless implicated her with Delacour's murder. Her anxiety to secure the goblet was very obvious. In some subtle way, handed down doubtless through generations, the goblet, once in the possession of the ancient brotherhood, had held the key of the secret cipher. But to-morrow night, to-morrow night was the night of the ball, and Madame was to be there. The reasoning was so obvious that the chain of evidence struck to Freyer and me simultaneously. We immediately left the theatre. There was one thing to be done, and that without delay. I must catch the first train in the morning to Pitsy Hall, examine the goblet afresh, and tell Pitsy everything, and thus secure and protect the goblet from harm. If possible, I would myself discover the key to the cipher, which, if our reasoning was true, would place Madame in a felon's dock and see the end of the Brotherhood. At ten o'clock the following morning I reached Pitsy Hall. When I arrived I found, as I expected, the house in more or less confusion. Pitsy was busily engaged superintending arrangements and directing the servants in their work. It was some little time before I could see him alone. "'What is the matter, my dear fellow?' he said. "'I am very busy now.' "'Come into the library, and I will tell you,' I replied. As soon as ever we were alone, I unfolded my story. Hardened by years of contact with the world, it was difficult to startle or shake the composure of Leonardo Pizzi, and before I had finished my strange tale, I could see from his expression the difficulty I should have in convincing him of the truth. "'I have had my suspicions for a long time,' I said in conclusion. "'These are not the first dealings I have had with Madame Colucci.' Hitherto she has eluded all my efforts to get her within the arm of the law, but I believe her time is near. Pitsy, your goblet is in danger. You will remove it to some place of safety? "'Remove the luck of Pitsy Hall on the night when my boy comes of age,' replied Pitsy, frowning as he spoke. "'It is good of you to be interested, Head, but really—' "'Well, I never knew you were such an imaginative man. As to any accident taking place to-night, that is quite outside the realms of probability.' The band will be placed in front of the goblet, and it is impossible for anything to happen to it, as none of the dancers can come near it. Now, have you anything more to say? I beg of you to be guided by me and to put the goblet into a place of safety, I repeated. You don't suppose I would try to scare you with a cock-and-bull story. There is reason in what I say. I know that woman. My uneasiness is far more than due to mere imagination. To please you, Head, I will place two of my footmen beside the goblet during the ball, in order to prevent the slightest chance of any one approaching it. There, will that satisfy you? I was obliged to bow my acquiescence, and Pitsy soon left me, in order to attend to his multifarious duties. 
I spent nearly an hour that morning examining the goblet afresh. The mystical writing on the cup, concealed by the open-work design, engrossed my most careful attention, but so well were the principal letters concealed by the outside ornaments that I could make nothing of them. Was I, after all, entirely mistaken, or did this beautiful work of art contain hidden within itself the power for which I longed, the strange key to the mysterious paper which would convict Madame Colucci of a capital charge? The evening came at last, and about nine the guests began to arrive. The first dance had hardly come to an end before Madame Colucci appeared on the scene. She wore a dress of cloth of silver, and her appearance caused an almost imperceptible lull in the dancing and conversation. As she walked slowly up the great ballroom on the arm of a country magnet, all eyes turned to look at her. She passed me with a hardening about the corners of her mouth, as she acknowledged my bow, and I fancy I saw her eyes wander in the direction of the goblet at the other end of the room. Soon afterwards Antonia Pitsey came to my side. "'How beautiful everything is,' she said. "'Did you ever see anyone look quite so lovely as Madame? Her dress to-night gives her a regal appearance. Have you seen our dance programme? The Queen Waltz will be played just after supper.' "'So you have fallen a victim to the popular taste,' I answered. "'I hear that waltz everywhere.' "'But you don't know who has composed it?' said the girl, with an arch look. "'Now I don't mind confiding in you. It is Madame Colucci.' I could not help starting. "'I was unaware that she was a musician,' I remarked. "'She is, and a most accomplished one. We have included the waltz in our program by her special request. I am so glad. It is the most lively and inspiriting air I ever danced to.' Antonia was called away, and I leant against the wall, too ill at ease to dance or take any active part in the revels of the hour. The moments flew by, and at last the festive and brilliant notes of the Queen Waltz sounded on my ears. Couples came thronging into the ballroom as soon as this most fascinating melody was heard. To listen to its seductive measures was enough to make your feet tingle and your heart beat. Once again I watched Madame Colucci as she moved through the throng. Ottavio Pizzi, the hero of the evening, was now her partner. There was a slight color in her usually pale cheeks, and I had never seen her look more beautiful. I was standing not far from the band, and could not help noticing how the dominant note, repeated in two bars when all the instruments played together in harmony, rang out with a peculiar and almost passionate insistence. Suddenly, without a moment's warning, and with a clap that struck the dancers motionless, a loud crash rang through the room. The music instantly ceased, and the priceless heirloom of the Pitsies lay in a thousand silvered splinters on the polished floor. There was a moment's pause of absolute silence, followed by a sharp cry from our host, and then a hum of voices as the dancers hurried toward the scene of the disaster. The consternation and dismay were indescribable. Pitsy, with a face like death, was gazing horror-struck at the base and stem of the vase which still kept their place on the malachite stand, the cup alone being shivered to fragments. The two footmen who had been standing under the pedestal looked as if they had been struck by an unseen hand. Pushing my way almost roughly through the crowded throng, I reached the spot. Nothing remained but the stem and the jewelled base of the goblet. Silent and gazing at the throng as one in a dream stood Madame Colucci. Antonia had crept up close to her father, her face as white as her dress. "'The luck of Pitsy Hall,' she murmured, "'and on this night, of all nights!' As for me, I felt my brain almost reeling with excitement. For the moment the thoughts which surged through it numbed my capacity for speech. I saw a servant gathering up the fragments. The evening was ended, and the party gradually broke up. To go on dancing would have been impossible. It was not till some hours afterwards that the whole satanic scheme burst upon me. 
the catastrophe admitted of but one explanation. The dominant note, repeated in two bars when all the instruments played together in harmony, must have been the note accordant with that of the cup of the goblet, and by the well-known laws of acoustics, when so played, it shattered the goblet. Next day there was an effort made to piece together the shattered fragments, but some were missing. How removed, by whom taken, no one could ever tell. Beyond doubt the characters cunningly concealed by the open-work pattern contained the key to the cipher. But once again Madame had escaped. The ingenuity, the genius of the woman, placed her beyond the ordinary consequences of crime. Delacour's murder still remains unavenged. Will the truth ever come to light? End of chapter 4